Chapter Three of Jewels of Gwalor by Robert Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three The Return of the Oracle. Conan wheeled supplely, sweeping the shadows with a fiercely questing stare. There was no sign of the murdered man's body. Only yonder the tall, lush grass was trampled and broken down, and the sward was dabbled darkly and wetly. Conan stood scarcely breathing as he strained his ears into the silence. The trees and bushes with their great pallid blossoms stood dark, still, and sinister, etched against the deepening dusk. Primitive fears whispered at the back of Conan's mind. Was this the work of the priests of Kishan? If so, where were they? Was it Zargheba, after all, who had struck the gong? Again there rose the memory of Bit-Yakin and his mysterious servants. Bit-Yakin was dead, shriveled to a hulk of wrinkled leather and bound in his hollowed crypt to greet the rising sun forever. But the servants of Bit-Yakin were unaccounted for. There was no proof they had ever left the valley. Conan thought of the girl, Muriela, alone and unguarded in that great shadowy palace. He wheeled and ran back down the shadowed avenue, and he ran as a suspicious panther runs, poised even in full stride to whirl right or left and strike death blows. The palace loomed through the trees, and he saw something else the glow of fire reflecting redly from the polished marble. He melted into the bushes that lined the broken street, glided through the dense growth, and reached the edge of the open space before the portico. Voices reached him, torches bobbed, and their flare shone on glossy ebon shoulders. The priests of Kishan had come. They had not advanced up the wide, overgrown avenue as Zargheba had expected them to do. Obviously there was more than one secret way into the valley of Alcminon. They were filing up the broad marble steps, holding their torches high. He saw Garulga at the head of the parade, a profile chiseled out of copper, etched in the torch-glare. The rest were acolytes giant black men from whose skins the torches struck highlights. At the end of the procession there stalked a huge negro with an unusually wicked cast of countenance, in the sight of whom Conan scowled. That was Gwarunga, whom Muriela had named as the man who had revealed the secret of the pool entrance to Zargheba. Conan wondered how deeply the man was in the intrigues of the Stygian. He hurried toward the portico, circling the open space to keep in the fringing shadows. They left no one to guard the entrance. The torches streamed steadily down the long, dark hall. Before they reached the double-valved door at the other end, Conan had mounted the other steps and was in the hall behind them. Slinking swiftly along the column-lined wall, he reached the great door as they crossed the huge throne-room, their torches driving back the shadows. They did not look back. In single file, their ostrich plumes nodding, their leopard-skin tunics contrasting curiously with the marble and the arabesqued metal of the ancient palace, they moved across the wide room, 
and halted momentarily at the golden door to the left of the throne dais. Goruga's voice boomed eerily and hollowly in the great empty space, framed in sonorous phrases unintelligible to the lurking listener. Then the high priest thrust open the golden door and entered, bowing repeatedly from his waist, and behind him the torches sank and rose, showering flakes of flame, as the worshippers imitated their master. The gold door closed behind them, shutting out sound and sight, and Conan darted across the throne chamber and into the alcove behind the throne. He made less sound than a wind blowing across the chamber. Tiny beams of light streamed through the apertures in the wall as he pried open the secret panel. Gliding into the niche, he peered through. Muriela sat upright on the dais, her arms folded, her head leaning back against the wall, within a few inches of his eyes. The delicate perfume of her foamy hair was in his nostrils. He could not see her face, of course, but her attitude was as if she gazed tranquilly into some far gulf of space, over and beyond the shaven heads of the black giants who knelt before her. Conan grinned with appreciation. The little slut's an actress, he told himself. He knew she was shriveling with terror, but she showed no sign. In the uncertain flare of the torches, she looked exactly like the goddess he had seen lying on that same dais, if one could imagine that goddess imbued with vibrant life. Gorulga was booming forth some kind of a chant in an accent unfamiliar to Conan, and which was probably some invocation in the ancient tongue of Alcminon, handed down from generation to generation of high priests. It seemed interminable. Conan grew restless. The longer the thing lasted, the more terrific would be the strain on Moriella. If she snapped, he hitched his sword and dagger forward. He could not see the little trollop tortured and slain by these men. But the chant, deep, low-pitched, and indescribably ominous, came to a conclusion at last, and a shouted acclaim from the acolytes marked its period. Lifting his head and raising his arms toward the silent form on the dais, Garulga cried in the deep, rich resonance that was the natural attribute of the Kashani priest. O oh, great goddess, dweller with the great one of darkness, let thy heart be melted, thy lips opened for the ears of thy slave, whose head is in the dust beneath thy feet. Speak, great goddess of the holy valley. Thou knowest the paths before us. The darkness that vexes us is as the light of the midday sun to thee. Shed the radiance of thy wisdom on the paths of thy servants. Tell us, O mouthpiece of the gods, what is their will concerning Thutmerkri the Stygian? The high-piled, burnished mass of hair that caught the torchlight in dull bronze gleams quivered slightly. A gusty sigh rose from the blacks, half in awe, half in fear. 
Muriela's voice came plainly to Conan's ears in the breathless silence, and it seemed cold, detached, impersonal, though the Cimmerian winced at the Corinthian accent. It is the will of the gods that the Stygian and his Shemitish dogs be driven from Kishan. She was repeating his exact words. They are thieves and traitors who plot to rob the gods. Let the teeth of Gwalor be placed in the care of the general Conan. Let him lead the armies of Kishan. He is beloved of the gods. There was a quiver in her voice as she ended, and Conan began to sweat, believing she was on the point of an hysterical collapse. But the blacks did not notice any more than they identified the Corinthian accent of which they knew nothing. They smote their palms softly together, and a murmur of wonder and awe rose from them. Gorulga's eyes glittered fanatically in the torchlight. Yelaya has spoken! he cried in an exalted voice. It is the will of the gods. Long ago in the days of our ancestors they were made taboo and hidden at the command of the gods, who wrenched them from the awful jaws of Gwalor the King of Darkness in the birth of the world. At the command of the gods the teeth of Gwalor were hidden. At their command they shall be brought forth again. O oh, star-born goddess! Give us your leave to go to the secret hiding-place of the teeth, to secure them for him whom the gods love." "'You have my leave to go,' answered the false goddess, with an imperious gesture of dismissal that set Conan grinning again, and the priests backed out, ostrich plumes and torches rising and falling with the rhythm of their genuflections. The gold door closed, and with a moan the goddess fell back limply on the dais. "'Conan!' she whimpered faintly. "'Conan!' "'Shh!' he hissed through the apertures, and turning, glided from the niche and closed the panel. A glimpse past the jam of the carven door showed him the torches receding across the great throne-room but he was at the same time aware of a radiance that did not emanate from the torches. He was startled, but the solution presented itself instantly. An early moon had risen, and its light slanted through the pierced dome, which by some curious workmanship intensified the light. The shining dome of Alcminon was no fable, then. Perhaps its interior was of the curious, whitely flaming crystal found only in the hills of the black countries. The light flooded the throne-room and seeped into the chambers immediately adjoining. But as Conan made toward the door that led into the throne-room, he was brought around suddenly by a noise that seemed to emanate from the passage that led off into the alcove. He crouched at the mouth, staring into it remembering the clangor of the gong that had echoed from it to lure him into a snare. The light from the dome filtered only a little way into that narrow corridor, and showed him only empty space. Yet he could have sworn that he had heard the furtive pad of a foot somewhere down it. 
While he hesitated, he was electrified by a woman's strangled cry from behind him. Bounding through the door behind the throne, he saw an unexpected spectacle in the crystal light. The torches of the priest had vanished from the great hall outside, but one priest was still in the palace. Guarunga. His wicked features were convulsed with fury, and he grasped the terrified Muriela by the throat, choking her efforts to scream and plead, shaking her brutally. Traitorous! Between his thick red lips his voice hissed like a cobra. What games are you playing? Did not Zaghiba tell you what to say? I— but Mercury told me, are you betraying your master, or is he betraying his friends through you? Slut! I'll twist off your false head, but first I'll— A widening of his captive's lovely eyes, as she stared over his shoulder, warned the huge black. He released her and wheeled, just as Conan's sword lashed down. The impact of the stroke knocked him headlong backward to the marble floor, where he lay twitching, blood oozing from a ragged gash in his scalp. Conan started toward him to finish the job, for he knew that the priest's sudden movement had caused the blade to strike flat. But Muriela threw her arms convulsively about him. "'I've done as you ordered,' she gasped hysterically. "'Take me away! Oh, please, take me away!' "'We can't go yet,' he grunted. "'I want to follow the priests and see where they get the jewels. "'There may be more loot hidden there, but you can go with me. "'Where's the gem you wore in your hair?' "'It must have fallen out on the dais,' she stammered, feeling for it. "'I was so frightened. "'When the priests left me I ran out to find you, "'and this big brute had stayed behind, and he grabbed me— "'Well, go get it while I dispose of this carcass,' he commanded. "'Go on. That gem is worth a fortune itself.' She hesitated, as if loath to return to that cryptic chamber. Then, as he grasped Gwarunga's girdle and dragged him into the alcove, she turned and entered the oracle room. Conan dumped the senseless black on the floor and lifted his sword. The Cimmerian had lived too long in the wild places of the world to have any illusions about mercy. The only safe enemy was a headless enemy. But before he could strike, a startling scream checked the lifted blade. It came from the oracle chamber. Conan! Conan! She's come back! The shriek ended in a gurgle and a scraping scuffle. With an oath, Conan dashed out of the alcove, across the throne dais, and into the oracle chamber, almost before the sound had ceased. There he halted, glaring bewilderedly. To all appearances, Muriela lay placidly on the dais, eyes closed as in slumber. "'What in thunder are you doing?' he demanded acidly. "'Is this any time to be playing jokes?' His voice trailed away. His gaze ran along the ivory thigh molded in the close-fitting silk skirt. That skirt should gape from girdle to him, he knew, because it had been his own hand that tore it as he ruthlessly stripped the garment from the dancer's writhing body. But the skirt showed no rent. 
A single stride brought him to the dais, and he laid his hand on the ivory body, snatched it away as if it had encountered hot iron instead of the cold immobility of death. Grom, he muttered, his eyes suddenly slits of balefire. It's not Moriella, it's Yelaya. He understood now that frantic scream that had burst from Moriella's lips when she entered the chamber. The goddess had returned. The body had been stripped by Zorghiba to furnish the accoutrements for the pretender, yet now it was clad in silk and jewels as Conan had first seen it. A peculiar prickling made itself manifest among the short hairs at the base of Conan's scalp. "'Moriella!' he shouted suddenly. "'Moriella, where the devil are you?' The walls threw back his voice mockingly. There was no entrance that he could see except the golden door, and none could have entered or departed through that without his knowledge. This much was indisputable. Yelaya had been replaced on the dais within the few minutes that had elapsed since Muriela had first left the chamber to be seized by Gorunga. His ears were still tingling with the echoes of Muriela's scream, yet the Corinthian girl had vanished as if into thin air. There was but one explanation that offered itself to the Cimmerian, if he rejected the darker speculation that suggested the supernatural. Somewhere in the chamber there was a secret door and even as the thought crossed his mind, he saw it. In what had seemed a curtain of solid marble, a thin perpendicular crack showed, and in the crack hung a wisp of silk. In an instant he was bending over it. That shred was from Moriella's torn skirt. The implication was unmistakable. It had been caught in the closing door and torn off, as she was borne through the opening by whatever grim beings were her captors. The bit of clothing had prevented the door from fitting perfectly into its frame. Thrusting his dagger-point into the crack, Conan exerted leverage from a corded forearm. The blade bent, but it was of unbreakable acbitalant steel. The marble door opened. Conan's sword was lifted as he peered into the aperture beyond but he saw no shape of menace. Light filtering into the oracle chamber revealed a short flight of steps cut out of marble. Pulling the door back to its fullest extent, he drove his dagger into a crack in the floor, propping it open. Then he went down the steps without hesitation. He saw nothing, heard nothing. A dozen steps down the stair ended in a narrow corridor which ran straight away into the gloom. He halted suddenly, poised like a statue at the foot of the stair, staring at the paintings which frescoed the walls, half hidden in the dim light which filtered down from above. The art was unmistakably Pelishtim. He had seen frescoes of identical characteristics on the walls of Oskalun. But the scenes depicted had no connection with anything Pelishtim, except for one human figure, frequently recurrent, a lean, white-bearded old man whose racial characteristics were unmistakable. 
They seemed to represent various sections of the palace above. Several scenes showed a chamber he recognized as the oracle chamber, with the figure of Yelaya stretched upon the ivory dais and huge black men kneeling before it. And there were other figures, too, figures that moved through the deserted palace, did the bidding of the Pelishtim, and dragged unnameable things out of the subterranean river. In a few seconds Conan stood frozen, hitherto unintelligible phrases in the parchment manuscript blazed in his brain with chilling clarity. The loose bits of the pattern clicked into place. The mystery of Beat Yakin was a mystery no longer, nor the riddle of Beat Yakin's servants. Conan turned and peered into the darkness, an icy finger crawling along his spine. Then he went along the corridor, cat-footed and without hesitation, moving deeper and deeper into the darkness as he drew farther away from the stair. The air hung heavy with the odor he had scented in the court of the gong. Now in utter blackness he heard a sound ahead of him, the shuffle of bare feet or the swish of loose garments against stone, he could not tell which. But an instant later his outstretched hand encountered a barrier which he identified as a massive door of carven metal. He pushed against it fruitlessly, and his sword-point sought vainly for a crack. It fitted into the sill and jams as if molded there. He exerted all his strength, his feet straining against the door, the veins nodding in his temples. It was useless. A charge of elephants would scarcely have shaken that titanic portal. As he leaned there he caught a sound on the other side that his ears instantly identified. It was the creak of rusty iron, like a lever scraping in its slot. Instinctively action followed recognition so spontaneously that sound, impulse, and action were practically simultaneous. And as his prodigious bound carried him backward, there was the rush of a great bulk from above, and a thunderous crash filled the tunnel with deafening vibrations. Bits of flying splinters struck him. A huge block of stone, he knew from the sound, dropped on the spot he had just quitted. An instant slower thought or action, and it would have crushed him like an ant. Conan fell back. Somewhere on the other side of that metal door Muriela was a captive, if she still lived. But he could not pass that door and if he remained in the tunnel another block might fall, and he might not be so lucky. It would do the girl no good for him to be crushed into a purple pulp. He could not continue his search in that direction. He must get above ground and look for some other avenue of approach. He turned and hurried toward the stair, sighing as he emerged into comparative radiance. And as he set foot on the first step, the light was blotted out, and above him the marble door rushed shut with a resounding reverberation. Something like panic seized the Cimmerian, then trapped in that black tunnel, and he wheeled on the stair, lifting his sword and glaring murderously into the darkness behind him, expecting a rush of ghoulish assailants. But 
there was no sound or movement down the tunnel. Did the men beyond the door, if they were men, believe that he had been disposed of by the fall of the stone from the roof, which had undoubtedly been released by some sort of machinery? Then why had the door been shut above him? Abandoning speculation, Conan groped his way up the steps, his skin crawling in anticipation of a knife in his back at every stride, yearning to drown his semi-panic in a barbarous burst of bloodletting. He thrust against the door at the top, and cursed soulfully to find that it did not give to his efforts. Then, as he lifted his sword with his right hand to hew at the marble, his groping left encountered a metal bolt that evidently slipped into place at the closing of the door. In an instant he had drawn this bolt, and then the door gave to his shove. He bounded into the chamber like a slit-eyed, snarling incarnation of fury, furiously desirous to come to grips with whatever enemy was hounding him. The dagger was gone from the floor. The chamber was empty, and so was the dais. Yelaya had again vanished. "'By Krom!' muttered the Cimmerian. "'Is she alive after all?' He strode out into the throne-room, baffled, and then, struck by a sudden thought, stepped behind the throne and peered into the alcove. There was blood on the smooth marble where he had cast down the senseless body of Gwarunga. That was all. The black man had vanished as completely as Yelaya. End of chapter 3